0: Foundation Arvind Gupta. The reason
2: that people are talking about India is massive digitization
0: and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host Jeremy Schwartz, global head of research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and The Future for Investors. Joining me in the studio today is Lee Chenren, director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the office of investment products, and the views our guests are their own, and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We have a great show lined up. We have a guest with us in the studio for the hour, Nir Kesar of Unison Advisors Nir. Welcome to Wharton.
1: It's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: We are excited to to drill in with Nir for the the full hour. I uh, just want to remind everybody: this is our new live time only, our second live show at Fridays at noon Eastern time. Uh, Professor, we've got all time highs in the markets here. The uh, trade deal is on. It looks like we're going higher.
2: Yeah, uh, you called it. I, it all, I'm looking uh, the, my all my all my risk asset markets are green up on my screen uh, right now. Really up. Surging to highs, and it is definitely an optimism. We've talked so many times that that is the major factor. Fed is not an issue anymore. They got where they want. The market doesn't expect anymore. Um, uh, so in in that way, that that big fear is taken out. Um, uh, the, you know, this the earnings came in okay, uh, not that much different than what it beat estimates, but by about the same as before. Um, This quarter's GDP is looking weaker, but we thought it was going to be weaker. It's looking about one and a half percent on the third quarter. But the market is fine with that as long as there's a a trade deal. It really does want a trade deal. Um, And we we see really technical strength, uh, as we pointed out in previous weeks, uh, across the world. I mean, uh, Europe, uh, in particular, even Japan, emerging markets took a little bit of a stumble but is moving back again today you know they they basically want uh they 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 want a deal um the term structure is comfortably um uh positively sloped now the uh three-month bill is 155 and uh the 10-year uh the 10-year bond is 182 uh the 30-year bond is 231 and so Th- those are all in the uh, absolute right shape we got a uh, big calming in the in the money markets fed funds right at 155 right at the interest on excess reserves so uh you know there's no tightness there seems like as we've said they would the fed is accomplishing what it needed to do to get liquidity uh back into that market um and so as they say uh you know, the only thing he can throw a monkey in this work is a fall through and, uh, and, uh, and you know, a t- tightening of the, of, of the trade optimism. Uh, but I think Trump wants to make a deal. He still praises the stock market um, politically. Uh, he knows he's got to get a deal done uh, uh, in order to have uh, a good chance in 2020.
0: Now, you know, there's been a, the the big story for the last decade, I know this is something Nir's going to want to talk about, has been how growth has led the markets higher. You know, the last three months, you've seen value make a little bit of a comeback. You've seen rates starting to come back. Uh, Any sense of your view of where we are in this growth value trade, Professor?
2: Yeah, and and we've we've mentioned this, that this might be a turnaround uh, period uh, as interest rates people getting used to the fact that interest rates are going to be nowhere near where they were, uh, that getting the dividend is going to be a really important issue for them as substituting for fixed income. And that's a slow but steady rotation that I think we're going to see over the next five years. uh, Actually, now whether it started two months ago or later on, it's it's going to be increasingly the story that uh, financial advisors are going to be talking to, to their clients about how are we going to get yield in in a world where fixed income is you know very close to zero, and I think that that is going to turn around some of these. Now, of course, you know, uh, the tech stocks have their own issues, and whether they're going to be you know there's political issues about about the size of the tech stocks, et cetera, and so on but i think uh the the economic and financial issues are going to be in favor of the value stocks uh into the future
1: near yeah. that's interesting i hadn't thought about that as a value catalyst um that's very interesting uh, hi, Professor Siegel. I'd love yeah. to ask you two questions, um, sure. if you don't mind. Yep. One is, um, and we, me and you talked about this, I don't know if you remember, a couple of years ago, and I'd love to revisit it because I think it's so timely. You know, the, the spread between the CAPE ratio and the forward P.E. is very large. I think it's about 12 or 13 points. It's as large as it's ever been, I believe. And the difference, of course, is the earnings themselves, depending on the earnings assumption that you make. And when I look at earnings growth over the last 10 years, let's say, since the financial crisis, it seems to me that earnings have grown a lot faster than they're long long-term historical average. Oh, sure. And I'm wondering how you think about that. Do you, does it trouble you at all, that spread between the CAPE and the forward PE? And do you think that earnings growth, as we've seen it over the last 10 years, which is keeping all of this up, is at a sustainable uh, path? Well,
2: it's been extraordinary because we had the biggest drop of earnings since the Great Depression in 2009. So we were starting from the worst bear market and worst earnings depression we've had in 75 years. So, obviously, from that low point, we've had extraordinary growth, uh, and it is certainly unsustainable growth, to to say the least. However, if you take a look at the price-earnings ratio right now, based on this year's earnings, uh, and I'm using S&P operating earnings, um, I I don't like reported earnings. I've written about this issue. Buffett doesn't like it, especially with the new mark-to-markets. It's biased downward operating earnings, not by the firms, but by S&P, which is a more stringent, uh, we're now selling at around 19. And that's fine you know, in a world of low interest rates and low transactions cost. So, uh, yes, the CAPE ratio, I've written on the CAPE ratio, why that is distorted, because 10-year average of 2009 data is just beginning to move out, and it has pushed that ratio down. You are absolutely right. We can't, we're not going to – when I look up, to, you know, I, every year it seems like the bottoms-up analysts give S&P 10%, 12%. In, I laugh. Hey, hey, no one's going to be in there. Well, we don't need that. We actually just need a few percent. Um, four or five. You know, you get 5% EPS growth. You get a 2% dividend yield. You know, that's seven, uh, eight. And, you know, the long-run real return on equities, I call 5 to 5.5% five from today's level. Lower than historical, but hugely above bonds. And still very satisfying for most investors.
1: You know, you touched on the mark-to-market, and one of the things that you talk about is that the earnings recession—the last couple of earnings recessions—have been uh, more dramatic than usual because of the mark-to-market rules that came in, I believe, in the early '90s. And um, and there's been uh, there's been uh, a more more changes to the mark-to-market rules recently. Yeah, and I'm wondering. worse. Well, I was about to ask you, what, does that, what do you think that means? I mean, I the earnings were down 50% in the tech bu- bust and 90% during the financial crisis. I mean, do you think the next earnings recession is going to look like that?
2: No. First of all, I, I, I don't. First, the financial crisis, I think, is a unique thing that I do not see repeated. In any in, in near term, not in my lifetime. And, uh, you know, it, it's going to take a long time. I mean, that shock and the, and the protections that are put in the liquidity of the banking system is so enormous. Now, that sort of run on the, those institutions just is not in the cards. I'm not saying there's not going to be isolated bubbles here and there, but that that sort of situation is just. Not in the cars, you know. Going back to mark to market, I mean, you know, Warren Buffett has written about that. He he actually says, you know, now reported earnings are worth worse than worthless. He said, I'm I'm just not I'm not using that to guide any of my decisions. You know, my people are looking at it. we we're, we're looking at our own definition of operating earnings, which is, you know, uh, stringently defined. But this mark to market uh, uh, idea. And they're only marking certain assets to market. The general rise in the value of a lot of assets that corporations hold are not put in year to year, and cushion these one-time hits that many of them take. So, you know, those people are saying, "Oh, you're just worsening the quality of them." They're they're ignoring a long-term capital gains in so many assets that don't get reported under. The mark-to-market rules. You only do it those that are impaired or you know ready for sale, and those are not the ones that are the long-term operating earnings. S and P operating earnings. I've, I've been on a record is the best, and that's what I base it on. We're 19 there, not expensive relative to other fundamentals. Uh,
1: Professor Siegel, let me ask you one other quick question, which you, I think you are uniquely suited to answer because if I'm if I'm not if I'm if I'm not mistaken, you you wrote a piece. Um, in the early 70s about the whole nifty 50 phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, pointing out the, their various valuations and making some judgments about how they're priced and so on. And I'm wondering whether you see any shadows of that in this market when, when you look at gross stocks, but very specifically when you look at the fact that um, within growth it's been the um, expensive companies with low profitability or negative profitability that have done the best over the well, last five only. years. Take a look at Apple.
2: Um... It's, it's got profitability. Look at Microsoft, the most valuable in the world, real profitability, reasonable ratios. I mean, we could talk about Netflix and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, Google also pretty reasonable. I mean, Facebook uh, and all that. I mean, uh, uh, Amazon, you know, I mean, you know, it's the giant there. It's making money in the cloud. I mean, uh, you know, it's still dealing with everything else. But it's, it's, it's nothing, certainly nothing like. The bubble we had in 1999, 2000, when companies sold for $100 billion and, and, and were making nothing uh, whatsoever.
1: How about Nifty Fifty, though?
2: Well, the, uh, so the Nifty Fifty, you know, that, that rose up. I mean, those companies made profits, but they sold for 50, 60, 70 times earnings. But, um, we have very few that are selling that way. I mean, maybe Netflix. And, I mean, I haven't looked at all of them right. And Amazon – um, uh, both of those have huge futures connected with them. Um, the, re- the the rest of the tech sector. What is S and P Tech? What is it? Twenty five times earnings. Not That's bad. Not, sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. It was don't forget nineteen ninety nine and P Tech was S and P Tech. I'm not talking about the internets and all that bubble that didn't. We're never in the S and P. Never in the S the S and P Tech sector. Was selling 90
0: times earlier. Professor I want to just get uh, one more question here before we let you go you know the you talk about the 5 to 6 percent forward looking real returns and you know what's interesting today um, if you looked at you know cap weighted you know give, obviously has its, its set of issues when you look at something like an earnings weighted version of the U.S. today there's around a 2 percent dividend yield and a 3 percent buyback yield so you add 2 and 3 wow. you get 5 percent today with no growth on top of nope that. No growth at all. How, how do you think, when you, when you think about that dividend and buyback, you know, a lot of people say, are, well, A, buybacks are sort of this uh, very political hot yeah, potato.
2: It's, it's a kind of, it's a stealth dividend that would probably be a dividend if we had tax laws that were sensible, uh, in my opinion, uh, and, you know, didn't uh, tax dividends the way they do and let capital gains rise. We put those on equal footing, and I made some proposals on that. We'd have much more dividends. Also, if we would correct management option packages that would be dividend plus price rather than just on price, we'd also have a lot more dividends. Um, And that's why other countries in the world who don't have these two things have much more dividends than we do. But you're perfectly right. You you know, that's why you sometimes do look at uh, dividends plus the uh, buyback yield, which is fine. And uh, you're right. You're getting that 5% return uh, real. Um, and then uh, uh, growth is is like icing on the cake.
0: It's a free option. How do, how do you think about what that growth rate could be on top of that?
2: Well, um, that, that growth rate could be a couple percent um, on growth. One thing about growing companies a, as a market, obviously, small companies that are in their growth phase, it's a different way to value. Don't use that. Earnings yield that, but for the market itself, remember growth does require some investment. Not as much as it used to be in capital and plant and equipment, but it does sort of investment. So you don't get all. You know, people say, "Oh, GDP growth is going two, three percent." Do I just add that? No, because firms need to pr- provide for that sort of growth uh, into uh, the market. But you're certainly going to pick up half of that, and and you know that could easily on those companies give you a six, 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 seven percent. Um, uh, yield altogether and in real terms, and that that would beat the market.
0: Very good. Thank you for this uh, extended market view here today.
2: Okay, we'll talk to you next week.
0: Uh, so we're going to have the rest of the hour with Nir Kesar of Unison Advisors. Nir uh, is also a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Nir has a focus of global markets around the world. Nir, who are your clients? Who are you working with? You know, for people like as your your expertise, how how do you think about? managing money and, and, and who the clients you serve at Unison?
1: You know, it's funny. I When I started out, I didn't think too much about who my clients would be. Um, I thought, it, sort of reflexively, I thought they would be individuals. Um, part, of the, part of my interest was to try to bridge the gap between what I think is the quality of institutional uh, portfolios and what individuals get. And so my early investors were individuals, but what's interesting is over the course of years, I've been doing this for 14 years, the clients have become institutional. So the, most of the assets that I manage are institutional, not individual, which is fine. But, um, but I still think there's work to be done in the industry in general about, I think, bridging the gap between what I, what I would consider institutional quality-type portfolios and individual Portfolios.
0: And you're unique as having really like a one. You're a you're a solo practitioner in a way. You don't have a big firm behind you. You've accomplished a lot with it with little.
1: Well, that's very kind. I'm an inspired loner, some would say. Um, and, and I wouldn't have been able to do it a generation ago, of course. I mean, the reason I can do it is because of technology and computers. And you know, there's. I mean, what what I do now by myself, you would have needed probably 30 analysts on Wall Street to do 20, 30 years ago. So um, really, um, you know.
0: Productivity is everywhere except in the data. So this is <laughs> That's the, right. This is the productivity revolution uh, at work. So, tell tell us a little bit of how you got started at Unison. Where did what was your background before that?
1: Well, so my uh, my undergraduate work was in business. Um, you know the usual stuff: statistics, finance, accounting, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, but but I did I, after I um, I worked as a consultant for a few years and then went to law school, practiced law for a while, which was fine. I liked it, but this was really. Was always sort of my main interest, so I went back into it, started the firm, and um, and and offered you know portfolio management services. And you know at the time, this was in the middle aughts. You know what I what I do now um, has become more I'd say accepted, but back then some of the stuff I was doing was anathema. I mean, you know, using funds for example instead of individual securities. You know, people would say, "Wait, what? You're going to buy funds for me? Like, uh, well, who needs that?" You know, and now most portfolios are funds because they're cheaper and more efficient and so on. Um, And also, you know, I was trying to target factors and apply that kind of analysis to the asset allocation, you know, uh, using valuation, momentum, those kinds of things, quantitative um, approaches to doing asset allocation, which I think has become, it 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 was early stages in those days, but I think it's become more widely accepted.
0: And what are the factors that you believe in?
1: Well, so I, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel to me, if it's in the uh, peer-reviewed academic literature, then it's good enough for me. you know and I, I am uh, I'm, I'm a believer first and foremost in evidence. Um, I'm a big believer in the peer review process in uh, specifically. Um, and so you know, I would say uh, I'm reading the literature, I'm persuaded that uh, value and size exist. I'm persuaded. Uh, that profitability, maybe quality more broadly, and momentum exist. Low volatility, I'm not 100% sure. I'm not sold yet. Um, I think there's more work that needs to be done there. Um, But that's within the asset classes. I think that some of those things can also be used to inform the asset allocation process. So certainly value and momentum and even profitability, I think, can be helpful for making asset allocation decisions. You know, Factor is becoming more widely accepted for actually buying an asset class, buying a fund. But it's not yet used, I think, broadly for the asset allocation. And that's, I think, the next frontier. I think that's where we should go with it.
0: And I, and I should disclose, we've done some work together as as a client, uh, Unison as a client of Wisdom Tree, so we would get that you know, full disclosure out there. We're talking with Nir Kazar, founder, portfolio manager of Unison Advisors, how he looks at building portfolios for individuals, but institutions is really where he's become. Um, and Lichon, looks like you want to jump in here with the yeah, conversation. Yeah, actually,
3: uh, for our listeners, can you explain a little bit, like what kind of institutions, like how do you help them? Because their end uh, clients are probably individuals
1: yeah so um their uh my institutional clients are predominantly endowments foundations and family offices, and they 're all slightly different i mean endowments and foundations they have a they, they have a practical problem to solve right because they 're generally run by trustees who are not in general investment professionals themselves and so they need to hire an investment professional. Um, so they're you know they're just looking around finding someone they're comfortable with and you manage a portfolio for them you know and that can be really anyone um, with family offices it's slightly different because they could they have a decision about whether to do it internally or whether to outsource it and some of them do do it internally uh, but but some some for various reasons don't want to do that they you know they don't want to manage an investment team or they don't feel like they're big enough to, to, uh, to sort of carry the cost of an investment team so they're, they are like endowments and foundations looking to outsource it the earliest outsourced CIO. Yeah, I mean, I guess you <laughs> you could call me that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's become, you know, outsourced CIO has become a thing. And I think it's actually going to grow.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, because uh, I think, that you know, traditionally that role I think has been played either by the big banks or consultants. Um, but I think increasingly uh, institutions want a fiduciary. They want someone who's actually going to take real risk, right?
3: Um, so... Um in, in, in the asset manager in the last uh, 10 years, there's really a shift in ETF and, and funds as well. Do you see this uh, in your portfolio management experience? Yeah, I mean,
1: I increasingly, you know, I often say to people, I, I'm sort of agnostic about funds. Um, what I'm looking for is whatever the exposure I want, I want to make sure that I'm getting it in the fund. And I want to get it as cheaply as I can or, you know, reasonably cheap. And, you know, what does that mean? I mean, if you're buying the market, obviously that's easy, right? You just buy the fund, you look at the expense ratio and you just buy whatever's cheapest. But if you're looking for a factor fund, if you're looking to buy a value fund or a quality fund or momentum fund, it's slightly more complicated because you have to know how much of that factor the fund is actually giving you, right? And 10, 15 years ago, we really didn't have the tools to do that. Now the tools are becoming, thankfully, are becoming more ubiquitous. Not perfect, but, but um, you know, there are there are various tools that you can, I think, vanguard, Recently rolled out, for example, a tool on their website. You can just plug in a ticker of a fund, and it'll tell you what the factor loadings are. So that's the first thing you have to do: figure out what's in the fund, and then you can go to cost. But the, the more important thing is to look at it and see what it is that you're buying. I just
3: wanted to say we also have this similar tool at Wisdom Tree. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. Okay, and Wisdom Tree. Yes.
0: When you think about that value quality tilt or value size tilt maybe more in particular, we started with Professor Siegel that it's been a growth-led, large-cap growth-led market. Talk about how you see those global market returns for the last decade and, and how that makes you either question exposures, want to lean into it more. What do you think?
1: So this may be a little bit controversial, but um, when, I look, when I look at the data, when I do a deep dive into the data, and I look at what's happened over the last 10 years, but very specifically over the last five years, what I see is a huge anomaly in the data. And I think it's something that we're not talking about enough, and I think it's something that we will talk about a lot um, once this period passes, and I do think it will pass. And what I'm referring to specifically, and I touched on it a little bit with uh, Professor Siegel is that um, over the last five, like I said, over the last five years in particular, the segment of the market that has done the best, if you look at global stocks, is US, large cap, high valuation, low profitability. And when you think about that, we're talking about a very, very tiny intersection of the world, right? Value in the US has been horrible, small cap in the US has been horrible, International and emerging has been horrible. I'm really talking about the small subset of stocks. And the question is why? What is driving this?
0: What's your answer?
1: And I think the answer <laughs> is everyone is trying to find, and Professor Siegel said it in his answer, everyone is trying to find the next Amazon, Google, and Facebook. It's un, it, it, there's no doubt in my mind that we are living through a period of great innovation combined with, social, uh, with, with the uh, social network effect, and that's going to create huge scale for some businesses. And I think everyone is trying to find that business. And whether it's WeWork or whether it's Uber or whether it's, right, we can, Peloton or whether it's, we can talk about many of these firms. Um, investors are chasing that, what I, what I call glamour stocks, or if you want to refer to them as lottery tickets. And the thing is, some of them will win, but many of them will not live up to their expectation. And I think when that, when that, When that sets in, I think you'll have a rotation back into more balance, into international, into emerging, into value, into size. And I can't tell you when that's going to happen, but I think it's going to happen relatively soon. And maybe maybe the WeWork burst is the first shot.
0: That's interesting. So when you think about the last two to three months – and, and really, I think everything turned like the end of August. And now what's interesting is it correlated with rates spiking, a little bit of China trade deal going better, which I think is what started the rates going higher. WeWork came around a similar time where WeWork was testing the market, trying to go public. They got very disappointing valuations in that. The question is, why was WeWork a tech company as it is? That's a whole other question, but a uh, so separate question. Good that, question. That took some of the, the rows off this, you know, sort of, tech enthusiasm, but it, it sort of correlated the rates changing, rates moving really moved financials and it really, and then there was the other tech underperformance. Like how, how should tech move with the rates? And I've certainly there's a link between financial and rates, but why do you think that was so interconnected?
1: Well, you know, I'm not 100 percent convinced that there's, a, that there's a connection there. I'm not saying that there isn't, um, but it's possible that it's that certainly what's happened over the last three months is, was coincidental. And I, am, I think that the uh, – you know, we're all trying to find explanations, right? And I think um, particularly when it comes to explaining what's happened in the overseas markets – and in my opinion, um, the interest rates trade those narratives I think are overdone and i and i 'll tell you why very briefly. One is you know there's the zeitgeist of the day seems to be that lower interest rates push up asset prices, which has certainly been true in the u s but that has not been true anywhere else in the world. I mean, if you look at Europe, for example, and japan you 're talking about zero and in some cases negative interest rates, and yet asset prices in general have not, are not high. Um, Valuations on stocks have not expanded there. So, if this were a rule that we could rely on, or at least mostly rely on, you would think that we would see it somewhere outside the US, but we haven't. And generally speaking, the same thing is true in emerging markets. You have, you have, um, you know, the rates there are not as low, but still, asset prices are on the floor. So, so I, I, don't, I don't know that there's a correlation there. The, um, the trade war, I would say the same thing about. I mean, you would think that a trade war would impact both parties, right, U.S. and China trade war. But in general, it's the Chinese stock market that's taken the, taken the brunt of this and not the U.S. And I'm not sure there's an intuitive reason why that should be.
0: You know, we talk about international and sort of Europe with low negative rates. I mean, In some ways, I think Europe is the same story as what you just talked about the U.S. Now, I look back the last 50 years, the last decade for Europe was literally the worst decade relative to the U.S. in 50 years. And it's part of the same story. Like I actually did some attribution in local currency terms. How much did Europe underperform the U.S. by? It was 600 basis points a year big number. Wow. And then you say well what are the factors? Well the main narrative is well Europe has no tech and it has a lot of banks. And and that narrative was pretty true like when you look at the four to five sectors that contributed the most tech was the absolute top financials were right there the european financials underperformed u.s financials by like 900 basis points a year you had then the consumer discretionary which is amazon you had right you know all those sectors and so that was like 80 to 90 percent of the story was tech and financials and so europe is europe the sort of prime focus of value
1: I think probably more than the U.S. I mean, I agree with everything you've just said. I mean, I think there is that, that tech and financial rift, and that rift was mo- most pronounced, I would say, in Europe. So yeah, but, but, I, think, but I, think we're, I think we're set for a global turn in value in general, and I think we have seen that over the last couple of months. Whether that's the green shoots, I don't know. Um, but, but I certainly think that uh, if you ask me to bet where the value turnaround will be most pronounced, my guess is it's in developed international. Interesting.
3: Interesting. I do have a follow-up question. Uh, probe a little bit. You, you mentioned that in the U.S., you know, the the low, you know, high valuation, low quality stocks has done well. Um, you know, the WeWork type. But on the other hand, there are these, you know, the actual have Amazon's. They are high quality stocks, but they are also low valuation. You know, uh, do you see these set of companies which have, you know, proven themselves to be able to generate earnings, but their valuation is also very high. Um they- to be a little bit different from the the set of companies you mentioned about, you know, like the WeWorks?
1: Well, yes, but only only uh, only looking backwards, not looking forward. Um, in other words, you know, I wrote about this in my piece yesterday for Bloomberg, is when I look at Am- Amazon, is so interesting because if you said to me, give me your short list of rules for buying stocks or equity investing in general, I would tell you three things, profits, governance, and price. Those are basically my three ironclad, right, going back to Ben Graham and and Dodd and Don Graham, um, and when you think about Amazon, Amazon for most of its life, it went public in ninety seven, I believe. Violated all three rules. I mean, you have a company that was low profitability or negative profitability for most of its first twenty years. You have a company that's basically run by Jeff Bezos, who was a king in all but name, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so very little governance there. And then you have, um, and then you have the price, which it was very very expensive for a long time, but. If you would put $10,000 into Amazon when it went, it would be worth close to $12 million. So here's a company that violated all the rules and made you rich, right? And the question is, is that the anomaly or is that the rule? And I would say to you that is the vast anomaly, and it can only be seen in advance. If you were looking at it... uh, you know beforehand if you were trying to make predictions i think you would the data would say to you that amazon is a bad bet but this is the issue is that is that when investors see how amazon has turned out it gives them confidence that they can find the next amazon and so in my opinion what's happened over the last 5 years is the chase is on everyone's looking for the next amazon and someone's going to be right but a lot of people are going to be
0: wrong. What do you think about one of the things? You know, I think about, and as we think about, what are these growth stories? What can they persist? And you and you mentioned a few names of these platform type companies, like an Uber, a Lyft, Airbnb. How much do you think their operating models changing? Is a different economic business model, sort of asset light? just very different way of building a company with very different gross margins, very different profitability metrics, like so that they have these high fixed costs, but then they can really scale and much faster margins or higher margins and more profitability if, if they do get to scale? What do you think?
1: Well, that's the theory, for sure. And that's what everyone's counting on, I'm 100% certain. Um, I have two skepticisms around that. One is I think we're learning that the it takes a lot more people to run the robots than we ever imagined. I mean, when you look at the number, you know, a lot of people that use Uber or Lyft or whatever, you know, they're, you know, to them, it's technology, right? They just they dial it up on their phone and a car comes. But, I mean, Uber has thousands of employees and not drivers. Thousands of employees are actually, you know, and when you point this out to people, people say, oh, my God, what do you what do you need all those people for? This is a technology platform. But what we're learning is you need a lot of people to run technology, ironically. And so the question is, what is scale? Um, you know, I think when we first thought about this, we thought scale was a lot sooner than where these companies are now. And now it's, it's not clear to me that they can ever reach scale. I mean, it's possible, for example, that with an Uber, that you're just not going to get to scale unless you have uh, driverless cars. And obviously that's a whole other leap. So I, I'm not 100% sure that um, that scalability is as easy in, in these businesses as we first imagined. Hmm.
0: And so now when you're thinking about that growth part of the market being extended then so this idea that everything else is cheap u.s large cap low profitability is the the anti-portfolio you know thinking about how you build this into a portfolio construction i mean we've talked a little bit before about buy and hold versus sort of dynamic approaches how do you think about these dynamic approaches and try to add add value that way
1: well, so I think we have to be very careful and very specific in how we talk about this because um, there are there are things that we know won't work and um, and I, I don't think you can stress this enough and I try to stress this every time I talk, which is um, binary market timing doesn't work. Any, I have never seen. Uh, I have if if someone is aware of it, I would love for them to send it to me. I've 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 sent out this challenge for a decade and I've, no one's ever taken me up on this, but I've not e- ever even seen a back test where if you have some binary mechanism where you get in and out of markets in a binary way that you can add value. And the, the reason is very simple is you're going to be wrong sometimes and the penalty that you're going to pay for, the penalty you'll pay for being out of the market when you're wrong will overwhelm any value you will add by being right. So that's off the table. The only question in my opinion is whether you can tilt your portfolio in one direction or another um, based on based on what based on momentum based on valuation to add value in the portfolio, and I think there's there's been plenty of work done um, both by practitioners and in the uh, academic literature that shows that you can. Um, with two big caveats, one is on a gl- global basis we don't have a ton of data. We might have data to model this going back to the 1990s, so we don't have a ton of observations to be able to say that this is truly robust. The second thing is. Um, as far as I know, no one has been able to model it and get what academic nerds call statistically significant results. In other words, they like to see—I'm going to go geek on you for a minute—they like to see a t-statistic with with that's that's robust at the 95% confidence. And as far as I know, no one's been able to generate that. So, um, so in other words, um, we can't—we don't know 100% that these models that do these tilting. Um, Our chance or that they're something that you can count on persisting in the future. So now this is where judgment comes into play. I think it's relatively easy to do. I think that if you do it in a measured and risk managed way, it's worth taking the risk to try to get that extra performance. But the jury's out. We need more data. We need more time to be able to say as an empirical matter that these things can work.
0: Now, you've been doing it for portfolios for 10 years. So how what are the qualitative tilts that you've been employing in, in your factor timing type approach?
1: So I favor uh, valuation and momentum. Um I like value cuz value is uh is we have a lot of evidence to back up value as a phenomenon and it's also intuitive right I mean things that are cheap you know it's the old buy low sell high I mean things that are cheap should go up and things that are expensive should go down and they do the problem is they can take a long time to do it and you might want to jump out of a window before you even get paid which is by the way what's happening now right I mean value investors have been suffering for a long time um well so we, there is some anesthesia for that and the anesthesia is the momentum I mean, momentum is, is, um, is a, in combination with value um, can give you a little bit of guidance about how long it'll take, um, and it can make those periods where what you're doing is out of favor be a little more digestible.
3: How do you combine value and momentum?
0: Yeah, isn't it just one just the other?
3: It is. Well, not entirely, right?
1: So when you look at... Um, one way to see this is when you look at value and momentum as asset classes, right? Like if you look, take a value fund and a momentum fund, and you looked, you looked at their alphas, in other words, not their total return, but their excess return over the market, what you would see is, in general, those two things are negatively correlated. So um, not, not, and this is often confused, not zero correlation, but actual significant negative correlation. And what that tells you is that when value is up, momentum is down and vice versa. And so by combining them, you're able to get both of the premiums, but lower the volatility of each one individually. And so that's about as free a lunch as you're going to get in investing, no different than diversification in general. The, the, um, I would argue, although we have less data for this, I would argue that that works similarly across the asset allocation. So if you apply valuation to the asset allocation and momentum to the asset allocation, you'll get, a negative, uh, correl- you'll get a negative correlation in the outperformance, and you, you'll be able to add value to both and lower the um, tracking error.
0: So we're so that's interesting. If you apply that to bonds today, you could say, "What the value is pretty low if the ten-year TIPS yield is close to zero. They're pretty they're pretty expensive." Um, so. And then momentum is pretty strong, it depends, I guess, besides the last few weeks. like what, what, what? How do you think about the equity bond mix today based on those signals?
1: So that's an interesting question because in general, I apply this to the risk side of my portfolio. So the stocks, if you want, more than the bonds, mm. um, because the outperformance, the, the, the potential for outperformance on the stock side is much greater than the bond side. Um, so I have not looked at those numbers recently, but if I just had to go by intuition, I would agree with your intuition, which is I would say probably on the valuation side bonds are expensive on the momentum side momentum is strong and so those two things would basically lead you somewhat indifferent
0: hmm. and so and then within equities are you a you when you heard when you asked Siegel on the Cape Ratio is that because you know are you are you a believer that on uh, what Siegel said how, react to what he said on, on the Cape Ratio what that means for U.S. equities for you
1: well I think he raises a number of really good points um, uh, I think he's right that the fact that markets are cheaper and more liquid means there's more stock ownership, more participation in the stock market in general, and that should cause valuations to go up. Um, uh, and, um, and I think he's also right that you have to take into account where earnings came from during the recession. Having said that, um, when we're looking at P.E. ratios, whether it's CAPE or whether it's forward, we're, what we're really arguing about is what is the earnings number, right? And since none of us know what the earnings are going to be, we have to decide what's the best proxy, and you know the cape, as you know, takes a trailing average on the on the on the idea that uh, that that the trailing average will approximate the long-term growth of earnings better than any one moment in time. Certainly, better than what analysts think next year and what it was last year. Um, but, in general, if you in general what'll happen is especially during bull markets is the cape will bring the earnings number down, and analysts, of course, like for the earnings numbers to go up, and so there will be a divergence between those two things but here 's what I think is interesting is that when you look back in time at the difference between the cape and the uh, and the and the forward p e what you see is that the divergence between them changes, so it 's not static sometimes it 's big and sometimes it 's small. And in general, when that divergence has become big, it's, it's trouble. I mean, that, that divergence is big today. It was relatively big before the crisis. It was big before the dot-com bust. It was big before, in the nifty-fifty era. You know, when that thing spreads, um, what that's telling you is, in general, that analysts' expectations for earnings are too bullish. And when they become disappointed, everything has to reprice and stock prices come down. So I'm not telling you that that will happen, but I'm saying that from a risk management perspective. If you're looking at this as a risk manager, that's one of the things I think you ought to look at. The spread between the CAPE and the forward PE, and right now that spread is big.
0: We're talking with Nir Kesar, the founder and portfolio manager at Unison Advisors. Unison Advisors, and so so. Nir, hearing the spread is 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 high. Are you lowering U.S. equities? Is that the conclusion?
1: I have been, and I've been suffering greatly for it. Um, in general, when I look at uh, you know capital market assumptions, expected returns over the next five, seven, ten years. I can't help but feel that you're going to get – you have to expect a higher return from developed international and emerging than the U.S. And I just decided recently just to look around and see what everyone else is saying about this. And I looked at, um, you know, J.P. Morgan and research affiliates and Morningstar and um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, GMO. You know, I just – folks who put their expected returns up on the Internet for everyone to see. I could not find a single one that had a higher expected return from the U.S., than either developed international or emerging. And I was struck by that. because
0: so doesn't that mean the U.S. is going to outperform? Yes,
1: <laughs> right? That's what you would take away from that. But, um, but it does at least raise – I mean, I don't think that, right? But, but you know – It's interesting
0: if, everybody's saying the same thing.
1: That's it. If everyone's saying the same thing, it must be the other thing. I think the more interesting question is what explains that? I mean, you, you, you know. People have
0: the same model. It's like the valuation models are what all these people are, are, are trying. Everybody's using a similar philosophy of it's these valuations that drive that long-term return.
1: So then why aren't these views reflected in their portfolios? I bet you if you looked at the portfolios that come out of these institutions, you would still see home bias. You would still see that most of the assets mm-hmm. are in the U.S. So if their conviction is that the return is going to be higher overseas, why, isn't, why aren't their portfolios reflecting that?
0: Well, is that yeah. is that dealing with the clients? Do they give you pushback if you want to? Yeah. If they, if you want to overweight international EM relative to like a fifty-five forty-five U.S. foreign benchmark, which is probably way more foreign than most people have,
1: right? Well, it is, yes, and uh, and and I'll tell you in my experience, it's not the client that pushes back. It's the manager's career risk that pushes back because inevitably what happens is the client will say, well, you're the professional, you have the numbers, you have the data, you're in the best position to make this judgment. Tell me, where should I be? And if you tell me that I should be you know, tilted towards the overseas markets, then that's where I'm going to go. But as a portfolio manager, that's real risk, right? Because if you live through the last three years and you're wrong for an extended period of time, they're going to fire you and you don't want to get fired. And so there is a conflict there. That I think um, that I think we as an industry would be would be better served to talk about, um, which is the, con- the, the, the you can call it a conflict of interest if you want, but I don't know that I would go that far. I would just say that um, that what what might be the right investing answer um, is not always the answer uh, that is going to serve our long term career interests the best, um, and so we ha- we as portfolio managers have to weigh that. And in general, I've just decided that I'm going to. I I I'm going to do what I think is the right investment answer more than I'm going to worry about the career risk and I'm going to let the career risk more, uh, you know take care of itself and that may
3: be silly um but I, I I don't know how else to do it so what kind of tracking error you know against this benchmark that you usually tolerate yourself to go so I take a lot of tracking error and uh, when,
1: I was, uh, when I was younger and uh, more naive and probably less wise about the behavioral elements of investing, uh, my view was, who cares what the, uh, what the active risk is? Whatever the answer is, that's what I'm going to do. But I, now with some experience years later, um, I, I realize that there is some discomfort, not only for me in it, but because f- my discomfort is not important, but there is for the client as well. And so you do have to take that into account. Um, because in general, clients, you know, whatever the benchmark is, they don't like to lag it, and they don't like to lag it for very long. And it might induce them to make decisions that are bad for them. And so you don't ultimately want to give them an experience that's going to end up being a bad one for them. So I do take more active risk than than most managers because I'm trying to get, I think, a higher performance than maybe a lot of managers are trying to get, knowing that, of course, I could fail, right? Um, but having said that, um, I, I will talk to my clients about, how much active risk we're taking, and I will say to them, we can dial it down um, in order to, to, to minimize those periods of underperformance. Would you
3: say like 10% is some kind of guideline? That a, over what period? Um, what, what do you mean by 10%? I know it's so hard to say, but let's say like over three years. Relative to the benchmark? Yeah. Annualized, 10% annualized? Uh, probably. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: too much in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, so it depends on the period, right? Over a one year period, you could easily be ten yeah. percent yeah. over yeah. under your benchmark. Yeah. Three years, I would say, if you just asked me to pull out a number, I would say the most clients can tolerate on an annualized, so per year, is four or five percent. So uh, uh, for most. three
3: years, it's about a total of
1: maybe ten percent.
3: Total, I would say ten to fifteen. Ten to fifteen percent. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. I think after that, mm-hmm. people are just going to jump out of windows. Yeah. Um, do you want to follow up a question? You know, um, I've have been paying more attention to hedging, which in the early part of my career I have not like uh, because it's. It, I think hedging has been somewhat ignored in academic rest- literature. You know, um, you you look at the equity premium; it's all about you know these factors, but not in the currency. Like, what's your view and experiences, and and how a sophisticated investors, you know, the philosophy should be think about those. Well, that's such a good
1: question because it really depends on the on the hedging. Um, but but maybe we should talk about one that's probably near and dear to your heart, which is currency hedging. Yes, please. And what's interesting about currency hedging to me is, and I'm just. Talk about it from a U.S.-based investor for a minute is if you looked at the evidence. If you looked at the U.S. dollar index, for example, in 2007, what you would have seen is that it was on an annualized basis, it was that index was down roughly one percent a year. So you probably would have looked at that and you'd have said, you know what, currency is no big deal. You know, it's net zero. It's a wash. Uh, it's a wash. It, it's
0: a wash. But actually, it's a bet on the dollar going down. And I'm happy to take <laughs> it. The dollar's gonna go down forever.
1: Yeah. Right. It's a wash. I'm not going to worry about it. Now, what's happened since the financial crisis is the dollars that that index is appreciated by about 2.2 percent a year. Right. And that's been really painful if you're an overseas investor. So this is where evidence sort of meets actual experience. Right. And then you have to make a judgment about it. Certainly you can um, when it comes to currency hedging. I don't know that I have a strong opinion. Um, I think that if you are, if you're truly a long-term investor and you're willing to ride out these periods, then I don't think you need to hedge the dollar. But I, what I would say to you is, if tracking error is important to you, then I think you have to look seriously at hedging the dollar because there's going to be some real tracking error from currency.
0: Well, tra- well, this is an interesting question. What is the benchmark? Um, and. You know, I would say the opposite, actually, saying, like, well, why would you bet the dollar is going to go down forever? Like, why do you think the euro is actually going to go down? Is having euros actually diversifying to you as a consumer in dollars in any way? No. No. Unless you have a house in Germany where you need euros. That's correct. And so does it act like it actually increases volatility of consumption to go buy some euros? And so, you know, it's a better than free option. In the sense, people say it's expensive to hedge. It's actually better than free because of interest rate differentials around the world. You're paid like two percent to hedge. The same reason why international hedge bonds can have the same return as U.S. bonds, even though the German bond is negative fifty basis points and the ten years almost two. You get the same returns in German bonds because of the hedging. Once you hedge that back to dollars, so unhedged doesn't collect two percent. Now people say, oh, that's true today, but not historically. Well. Last 40 years, you were probably paid 30, 35 basis points on average to hedge. And when is the ECB going to have a higher rate than the U.S.?
1: If I knew that, we'd be on my private island. It's going to be a long time. But, but Jeremy, let me ask you this, because a lot of people, I think, assume that there is a cost to currency hedging. And I think reflexively what they say is, I don't want to pay that cost. I'm a long-term investor, and it's net zero. But, but can you talk to that? What, why, is there a benef- why is there actually a payment to currency hedging?
0: It's true in emerging markets. So the way, the way, when, the way you get the, cost, the real cost of hedging is based on interest rate differentials around short-term money markets. If you could go and deposit your money in the European bank and say, I'm going to guarantee an exchange rate one month from now, how are they going to price that guarantee? They're going to price the guarantee that if I was in the U.S. bank earning 2% and I'm going to move all that to a European bank, we're going to charge me 40 basis points. How do you think they're going to price it? They're going to say it's charging me 40. I could earn two. It's like a 2.5% cost you know, to guarantee. Well, if, for, for, you're, you're paid 2.5 to, to go to, to. It's going to cost you to be 40 basis points in Europe. You could pay 2% here. To guarantee that difference you got to reflect that two and a half percent interest rate differential so if you could earn ten percent risk-free in a brazilian bank as you had historically versus only two percent here they're going to get it's going to cost you eight percent to hedge the hour and you can earn ten percent in a brazilian bank right so that that interest rate differential matters for how much you pay and so now rates in the em have come down so even the cost to hedge em which is a true cost they tend to have higher interest rates those have come down. Fed has been raising rates generally, you know. So, But that cost in the end is down. But you're still paid 2% in the developed world because the U.S. has higher rates than everywhere else.
1: And I think that's that's too little appreciated. But do you ha- – were there um, – I have a feeling you had other hedges in mind as well, right?
3: Um well, yes. Uh, also, um, I think uh, you know the market neutral, right? Like uh, um, or long short, you know, premiums. The, those are areas where in alternative products, where, where investors has you know has starting to be warming warm to them, but not, not yet. I would say, uh, uh, like, what's what's your view in those areas?
1: Well, I think it's a function of what's the uh, you know what's the objective, right? Like what's the what what, is, what you're what are you trying to accomplish in your portfolio on a standalone basis? Um, you know, in general, over time. Um, the, if you look at a market neutral relative to buying the market, you're going to expect a lower return. The only benefit is going to be a lower volatility, right? Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how it's almost like an insurance. It's almost like buying insurance. How much do you value that lower volatility and how much of the, of the return from buying the market, uh, from owning the market relative to a market neutral fund, are you willing to give up in order to get it? And in general, I would say, and this is probably because we're in a bull market, but in general, I would say that investors don't have a lot of appetite for that Um, now what's made this interesting from a portfolio perspective is that interest rates are on the floor. So, you know, if interest rates were at more normal levels, that's normal, who knows what normal is, but the historical averages, right? Then you would probably say market neutral doesn't make a whole lot of sense Mm -hmm. because I'd rather not take that risk and just get my five to 6% from bonds and I'm done. Now it's a whole different story because the spread is a lot bigger. But the question is, are you going to replace your bonds with market neutral hedge funds? And I don't think there's a lot of appetite for that either. So this is where I think market neutral has a problem. It doesn't. It, it, people don't want to replace their bonds with it, and they also don't want to give up the return from the market. So where does it go?
0: It goes to how you need to get efficient use of capital, and you get using leverage to dial up your bond exposure with equity is something that we focus on a little bit.
1: Yes, yeah. so that's mm-hmm. that's you the you answer, need, right? You need
0: to find ways to make room for those diversifiers, but it, you don't want to lose your bond exposure. It's a, it's a tough one.
1: It is tough, and I think, um, and, and you're right, I think uh, levering it uh, makes it more digestible.
0: But, but for the average individual, people hear leverage, it's very scary. So it's, it's got to be, it's, it's one of those things that it's, it'll be an interesting line of new research for people to, to focus on.
1: Well, what? I was going to say, as you know, the problem with leverage is people only hear about it during the spectacular blowups, right? Yeah. Long-term capital management, financial crisis. They don't hear about all the ways that leverage is used sparingly and in a risk-managed way to add value in a portfolio.
0: Near, this has been a lot of fun. We're out of time. We've been talking with Near Kazar of Unison Advisors. Lee Chan, thank you for being here in the studio. Producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz.